That's a little preview, by the way, of the Sanctus later. So when we sing it next time, you'll be be experts. You'll be just jumping right in. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I can just imagine the trepidation that Paul felt as he walked along that stone road leading into Athens. He could see the Acropolis rising up on the horizon, and he knew what that meant for him. You see, Paul had been to all sorts of places in the Near East by this point. He'd visited big cities like Antioch. He'd been to Jerusalem. He'd been to old cities like Ephesus and gone to Galatia. He'd gone to Thessalonica. He had gone to a bunch of different places, but Athens was different. Athens was different. You see, Athens was not the Athens of its heyday, not the Athens of the 5th century B.C. where you had Pericles and Socrates, uh, Alcibiades, Thucydides and others, these great uh, leaders of art and architecture and literature and rights. That time of Athens also was a time of political power uh, with the Delian League. They projected their power all over the eastern Mediterranean. By the time Paul was there, most of that had passed. There was no longer the great wealth of Athens, although the old buildings were still there. The Romans conquered it in 146 BC, and it had been comfortably under Roman rule. But the one thing that Athens did have was it had a lot of intellectuals. You see, Plato wasn't just a great philosopher who wrote his dialogues and handed them down to us. Plato also established an academy. He established a school. And the school still carried on at the time of Paul. Aristotle also established his own separate school, also in Athens, that still carried on in the first century. There were also schools for Stoics and Epicureans. If you lived in the ancient world, and you were super bright, and you loved intellectual things, where did you go? You went to Athens. And if you stayed there, you stayed in Athens, you stayed there not because it was a place where you could make a lot of money, and live a nice, comfortable life. You stayed there because if you liked debating ideas, if you liked arguing philosophy, there was no place in the world quite like Athens. Think of Oxford and Cambridge and New Haven and Palo Alto and Chicago and any other great academic institution place and combine them into one, and that is the ancient Athens that Paul was walking into. He must have been a little nervous. And after he walked in there and was discussing with people and trying to share the good news that he experienced in Jesus, some people challenged him to say, well, explain more. And so he went up to this rocky outcropping, the Areopagus. Uh, The Romans called it Mars Hill. And there he got ready to make his speech. There There he had to make a case for the sacredness of the gospel against what he saw as the profane all around him. And we have the same debate today. If we were to translate it in today's argument, this is the debate between those who are religious and those who are secular. This is something that we live every day. Now, in our country, we frame it in a particular context. I discovered this when I left our context. 
The year after college, I taught in England at this fancy boarding school, Eton College, uh, English church school. Uh, and when I was there, I was expecting it to be somewhat similar to the great Episcopal boarding schools with which I was familiar in New England, places like St. Paul's and Groton. But when I got there, I found out that, they were, that Eton was, in fact, very different. And one of the things that made it different was the way in which they framed religion. Do you realize that in England, when you take your A-levels, which is a sort of AP exam equivalence for England, uh, that you take the last two years of high school, when you take your A-levels, one of the A-levels you can take is in theology. That's not just in private schools, that's in public schools too. And theology, the theology curriculum, when I looked through it, is is pitched at a very high level. It's totally okay to be discussing religious ideas and theology in England in a way that in the United States would be entirely verboten. Places like Groton avoid it like, a, like the plague, even though technically it's an Episcopal school. You can't take theology at Groton or St. Paul's, but it can be an A-level for a public school student in England. Same thing at the GCSE level. Religion is just something that's an accepted thing. And again, the difference between secular and, profane, the secular and religious, the sacred and profane, is, is framed in a very different way there. Why? Because they have an established church. The Church of England is supported by the state. The queen not only is the head of state, she's also the head of the church. The bishops in England, historically, were lords who could actually sit in the House of Lords in addition to being bishops. The way the whole discussion was framed is very different. Now, the U.S., this is, this is where I get, <laughs> you have to forgive me, I, I, I like being a bit of a dork sometimes, and uh, especially when I'm talking about historical stuff and historical religious stuff. So if you forgive me for a couple of minutes, I'm just going to dork out just a little bit. So in the United States, it's very different. And one indication of this, when I moved to Iowa, and when I moved to Iowa, one of the things I like to do when I move to a new place is read history. I figure you can't understand a place unless you know something about its history. So, again, coming from Massachusetts, where there are hundreds of books written on Massachusetts, there are like a half dozen on Iowa. <laughs> so it's not that hard to, to brush up on Iowa history. And I, but I remember reading through, and there's this one detail that's telling. Reading through, and I got to the section on the Constitutional Convention for the State of Iowa in 1846. And in the Constitutional Convention in the State of Iowa in 1846, there was a motion at the beginning to begin the meeting with prayer. And the motion was overwhelmingly defeated. Think about this. Today, every legislative session in Iowa opens with a prayer, and yet the very first session they had did not. You seem confused. (laughs) You see, American religion today is a product of the frontier, and it's a product of the 19th century. As much as we as congregationalists like to think that American religion is a result of our, our Puritan and Pilgrim forebears, That, in fact, is not true. If you want to understand religion in the United States, if you want to understand religion in a place like Houston, Texas, it actually is better to look at a place like Iowa when it was being founded than Massachusetts. Just as Frederick Jackson Turner in his famous frontier thesis said that there's something about the frontier that's essential to the American uh, sense of what it means to be American, of new opportunity, the same thing is true with religion. You see, the people who went to the frontier to establish a new life, a lot of them were wanting to leave the religious establishment that they came from. You know, they grew up in a town where it was expected they went to church all the time, and they hated church, but they couldn't actually say it in those towns. But on the frontier, they're like, hey, I'm coming to the frontier so I can do whatever I want, and I am never going to church. 
So on the frontier, you actually had a lot of free thinkers and atheists who went to the frontier to be able to create their own life without this overhang of established religion. And then you also had, like, the Baptists and Methodists. You know, these people were, you didn't need education, you didn't need educated ministers, but they're going to set the fire of the Holy Spirit going. So you had these revivals, tent revivals. The average person on the frontier wasn't particularly well-educated. And so you had this free market of popular religion that was just flaming up all over on the frontier. That's what defined frontier religion. And this is where the Congregationalists and Presbyterians came in, because they were shocked and horrified by this. And so they tried to send out missionaries, as much as anything else, to be like, hey, let's get some careful, clear thinking involved in this. But in the end, those groups didn't win out. The people who won out was actually the popular form of religion, the Disciples of Christ, the the Baptists, the Methodists. Uh, Today, the non-denominational Bible church folks. These are the folks that define American religion, and it goes back to the Second Great, Great Awakening and to the opening up of the frontier. That's one of the reasons why uh, places where you had established religion, like in the Northeast, are far less overtly religious, because they didn't have this great free market, this great struggle uh, of religion. Well, that's all well and good, but as that was going on, what you ended up having in the United States, unlike in England, was a separation between your great academic establishments on the East Coast in the 19th century and the place where religion was you know, hot and heavy on the frontier. So as you had new things coming in, new insights, new religious things that were being discussed in the academies, actually what was going on in the pews couldn't have been more different. And again, we still today have a shocking divorce between what goes on in the seminaries and what goes on in the pews. So there developed over the course of the 19th century this antagonism to religion in the American academy that is completely alien to the academy in England. You go to Oxford and Cambridge and there's no no opposition to religion Whereas at Harvard in the mid-20th century, and Harvard to this day does not have a religion department because so many faculty members think that religion is not something that you should be able to study. So in the United States, again, there's this interesting antagonism between the religious and the secular, between the sacred and the profane. How do we bridge that gap? What do we do? How do we try and communicate the value of the religious to a secular world. There have been a lot of things that have been tried over time to try and make that translation possible. One interesting thing, you go back to the 17th century, dialing it back a bit, you go back to the 17th century and the great scientific revolution as it's beginning. In the 17th century, even these great scientists, Newton and others, these great philosophers, would still, theology was still the queen of the sciences. There was this sense that, uh, and again, you went to Harvard, or I guess later on Yale at the time, you'd only take theology when you got to be a senior. You had, to, you, you had to get through all the humanities first before you could actually get to the place where you could get to your theology. Um, so that, but, but there's a sense of like, you come to the religious place because this is where you get revealed knowledge. This is where you get the best kind of knowledge that's there. The problem is making that argument to people starts to fall apart as science advances. And by the time you get to the 19th century, people are like, you know what? You might have revelation there, but I can live my life just fine without it. The argument that was made here, come find revealed truth, just all of a sudden people are like, you know, I don't really care about the revealed truth because my life is just fine with the truths that society gives me. That didn't work. Then there are also those who say, well, you, 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 you come to church because that's where you find moral instruction. 
Without church, there's no morality. Without church, this, that this all falls apart. So you've got to come to church so you can find that moral grounding. You see this with Immanuel Kant in the 18th century in his categorical imperative. He's trying to translate what's fundamentally Christian concepts into a secular mindset. By the, by the time you get to the 19th century in the United States, if you read preachers at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, they'll often talk about this great law of love of Jesus, how it's this highest moral ideal. But of course, you go along and... The people who don't go to church, well, you know what? There are, a lot of good, there are a lot of good moral people who don't go to church. If your argument is you get morality in church, someone could turn around and say, yeah, well, there are plenty of very compassionate, loving, caring people who don't ever go to church. That sort of falls apart. There are others who would uh, make an aesthetic argument for going to church. There was a time, of course, where all your best art, music, literature was all church-focused. Come to church. See the beauty that can be. Well, over time, artists were given patronage from things outside the church. While Bach might have been someone who, again, was employed by a church and wrote all his pieces week to week, composers today, uh, a huge number of them don't get their paychecks from churches, and their music is uh, is not religious. I mean, Taylor Swift or Britney Spears, I don't know. Beyonce, good Houstonian. So there's that, there's that sense of the, the, the aesthetic argument coming to church. It's like, well, there's a lot of great beauty and art outside of church. That, that's an argument that falls flat. So in the, in, in the 19th century, you started to have an argument saying, well, come to church because we're going to give you a religious experience. You're going to feel God. That's why you should come to church. Get that good feeling of God. Of course, what happens if you come to church and you don't get that feeling? <laughs> or, let's say you're going on your life and you're like, you know what, my life's pretty good. I don't think I need it. What do you say? How do you, how do you, how do you communicate this religious, how do, you, how do you bridge this religious and secular divide? How do you communicate sacred things in a world that lifts up the profane? So I can, I can imagine the Apostle Paul sitting there on that rocky outcrop Sun pouring down, sweat forming on his palms as he sees the eyes of all these philosophers looking back at him, wondering what he's going to say to defend his beliefs against their very well thought out philosophies. They had all the arguments all lined up, ready to go. And I can see Paul there just at a loss for words and closing his eyes and taking a deep breath and, and then thinking about a statue that he'd seen the day before. A statue that had as its inscription to an unknown God. And Paul gets up and he talks about how the gods that you may worship or lift up, they're just idols. There's something deeper than that that actually is the true God. And that you, in fact, know that already. And he quotes from some of their sources. He says, God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And if you want to learn more about that God, 
then you can come talk to me. Paul does this convenient end around. As opposed to trying to argue with the philosophers on their path, he takes a step back and makes a statement that, hey, there is this oneness to God. It's there. God is in you. There isn't this divide between sacred and profane. It's a false dichotomy. The divide between the religious and secular is a false dichotomy because God is there. Now, the theologian, uh, Paul Tillich, who, again, I love, since you've heard a lot of my sermons, you've mentioned him. Tillich mentioned, Tillich put forth that there is a spiritual dimension to life. All parts of life has a spiritual dimension to it. And he defined that spiritual dimension as a dimension of life that has depth. It's the dimension of life that concerns you on a very deep level. As he would say, as the, type, the part of life that concerns you ultimately. It's one thing to be a philosopher talking about philosophy, and you can sit there, have a lot of fun in a coffee shop. But let's say you're a good utilitarian. You're like, oh yeah, greatest good for the greatest number. Well, if you live in the United States, that means you should be giving away most of your things to people in the third world. All of a sudden, the concerns are different. It's like, well, that's that's mm. Or more importantly, let's say you're talking about a philosophy of life and death. Then you're getting to something that's really deep. Or, you know, again, you can have, uh, you can be in a hospital and get a Band-Aid, and there's not much depth to that, but if you're standing next to a bed where someone is recovering from a serious illness, there's some real spiritual depth there because it's something that concerns you ultimately. Similarly, there can be a spiritual dimension to uh, sexual intimacy. You can have sexual intimacy that uh, isn't particularly deep, but then you can have sexual intimacy that uh, actually concerns you ultimately. It's just someone you love, someone you care about. There becomes a spiritual dimension to even something like sexual intimacy that's there and true. You walk into an art museum and you look at different paintings and you can appreciate the aesthetic value of the paintings. You can appreciate the use of color and paint and line and drawing. But then you see a particular painting where the look of the person in the painting reminds you of something that you'd seen before. Something deep and something powerful, something true. Or a painting that shows a scene that somehow moves you deeply on a level that's deep inside here. And it's different for each people, each person. You can look at an abstract piece of art and there could be an emotion on the, in those lines and in that color that, that moves you deeply, even potentially moves you to tears and someone else might not see it because the spiritual dimension depends on what is ultimately important to you. Let's say you go week to week and you get a paycheck in the mail. You don't think twice about it. But let's say you're someone who hasn't had a job for a year and a half and your bills have built up. And all of a sudden, you get that first paycheck. There's something about that paycheck that you get that has a spiritual dimension to it because that paycheck means that all of a sudden now you can provide for your family, you can pay those bills. That little thing makes all the difference in the world. There can be a spiritual dimension to so many aspects of life 
That's important. It's the things that matter. When I was working at Harvard, we had a service on Sunday evening for students. And I remember at one point, uh, our music leader, uh, Chris, got up to give a sermon. Now, Chris is a PK, preacher's kid. So he'd been around church for a long time. And he has about as sterling a resume for a musician as you can get. Uh, he went to Eastman School of Music, uh, the University of Rochester, which is one of the finest organ uh, training places uh, in the world for his undergraduate. Then he did a, then he did a time at St. Thomas's on Fifth Avenue. Uh, again, he was working there, which is, again, one of the greatest music program, sacred music programs around. And then he uh, went to Yale for his Master's of Music. And then he ended up at Harvard as the assistant organist at Harvard. This guy had, had seen it all and done it all. He'd seen music that was at the highest level. And he gets up in this sermon, and he starts telling a story of when he was at Eastman, and he had to go out, uh, and he had to go out and be a music director for this little church uh, in the countryside in New York. And so he drives out there, and he shows up, and the choir is like seven people, and, and he's like, no one can really carry a tune. They're kind of like me. They, they, they miss their pitches constantly. And they go through the rehearsal, and he's like, this is a disaster. <laughs> he's like, this is horrible. And then the, the worship service comes, and they get to the point in the anthem, and the choir starts singing. And there's a certain depth to the music. There's a certain something that clearly the words that this choir is singing mean something to them. When they're singing these words, these are words that are actually true to them. There's something they're touching them deep in their soul. And so as they're singing them, Chris is sitting there just overwhelmed by the power of the moment. He's like, he's like I had seen polished music in you know, the finest concert halls around. But that's not what gave it spiritual depth. What gave it spiritual depth was the ultimately of what was going on, the fact that this mattered tremendously to the people that were there, and it brought tears to his eyes as he listened to that amazing music. There can be something deeply sacred in so many aspects of our life. And I think the sad part is, is that so often we can go through on just the, the, the top layer of life and miss that spiritual depth. Miss the spiritual dimension. And if there's one thing that religious people can add to the conversation, it's pointing out to other people the importance of that spiritual dimension to life because that's what gives life its meaning. To name that as being there, to respect it, to honor it, to be able to be in the, in the, in the presence of the spiritual and metaphorically take off our shoes because we are on holy ground. It's up to us to be able to bridge that divide between the sacred and the profane, not by getting into arguments against the other side, but by pointing out how sacred and spiritual and what a gift all life can be.